Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Hurricane Ida became a storm for the record books as it made landfall in Port Fourchon, Louisiana on August 29th with sustained winds of 150 miles per hour. The devastation from Ida's high-end Category 4 hurricane winds, storm surge, and torrential rainfall were widespread across Louisiana, but the devastation didn't end there. As Ida's remnants tracked into the Northeast, it produced prolific amounts of rainfall, breaking records and claiming dozens of lives. With such stream events on the rise, communication of their potential impacts can bring challenges for forecasters and emergency managers. Here to highlight those challenges is the Weather Channel's own Dr. Rick Nabb, former director of the National Hurricane Center. Rick, thank you for joining us again. Always a pleasure to have you on Weather Geeks. Marshall, thank you for having me back. And I think it's good that we're having these important discussions here in the middle of the hurricane season while the events of Ida and the other storms are fresh in our minds because once again, uh, we have identified, I think, some communications challenges and we lost a lot of lives and there's some climate change uh, ramifications here and there's a lot to discuss. It is. And and I want to really do a deep dive on the Ida and the aftermath and the communication challenges, because even talking recently on Weather Geeks with uh, Louis Uccellini, uh, the National Weather Service director, he talked about, you know, a challenge with these sort of new normal storms and the rain intensities and all of those. And I, so I want to do a deep dive on that. But first, I just want to get your sense as a hurricane expert on, on the hurricane season so far in 2021. Uh, it's been a busy one. We expected it to be um, uh, with now 17 named storms. Uh, and as of this recording, and uh, 18, if Sam, I guess, gets a name, uh, we're going to we're releasing this today as we were, are recording it. Um, we haven't had anything to the caliber, I guess, of 2020 so far, but what's your overall take so far on 2021? Well, it's been another busy and bad season. And like you say, the overall sense from the seasonal forecast what it, is that it was going to be above average. And it, it, it has that feel of one of those years where everything is developing. Every tropical wave, especially as we've gotten into August and September, has found a way to develop. Not all of them have become hurricanes or major hurricanes, but it seems like even in the face of some hostile wind shear, warm waters have fueled storms that have uh, formed in large numbers. And, And I especially took note recently of things like Mindy and Nicholas in the Gulf of Mexico that became tropical storms and intensified all the way up to landfall very quickly in environments that were not ideal for formation and strengthening when you consider the wind shear. But it just seems like the warmer than average waters in the Gulf and elsewhere have enabled the storms to overachieve anyway. You know, that's an interesting point you made because we had a student at the University of Georgia that interned with the National Weather Service at Peachtree City a couple of years ago. And he did a, a, a study on Hurricane Michael. And one of the things I recall from his report out on his research is that Michael was similar in that, 
the wind shear at times would suggest that it would not have gotten as strong as it did. It sort of overcame this narrative that you don't want sort of a lot of wind shear there. But as you as you noted, there, you know, it's, as I told someone the other day, there are many pieces of a pie to get a strong hurricane. So I, it's interesting. I mean, are you seeing that trending in general or just something you've noticed in recent years? Oh, it's just one of those things that passes the eyeball test. You know, you feel like you've seen in the past years when wind shear was moderate to strong, that storms really struggled. And we've had some storms that have struggled, but it just hasn't been uh, a year where a lot of storms failed to form. Seems like everything that was a candidate system at least became uh, a storm and then uh, got even stronger than we forecast. And that's becoming such a common occurrence, not Every case is like an Ida, where it goes from tropical storm to Cat 4 in three days. But you still have a lot of storms that didn't seem like they had a good chance of forming in the first place, and then they did. And it didn't seem like they had a good chance of becoming a hurricane, and they did. And it just happens over and over. And meteorologist uh, Sarah Dillingham, our producer of Weather Geeks, pointed out that we have had eight landfalling storms this year. And that's year. the first half of the season. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a point that she's elucidating there. The first half of the season. And again, as we as we know, it's we're still sort of late mid to late September, which is still statistically, climatologically, the peak of the season, if you will, sort of, you know, on the other side of it. But yeah, I think your point's valid. We've got a long way to go. And we have eight storms, 17 names. And and October is the month historically where we've had more hurricane landfalls in the state of Florida than any other month. Not saying that's going to happen this year, but it just goes to show you that when we get to October, we get back to those homegrown storms that form on our doorstep and come north, and uh, we can have a lot of landfalls late in the season. Yeah, any anything catch here? I know in twenty twenty, for example, we had a ton of storms making landfall in Louisiana along the Gulf Coast. Anything catching your eye about how the storms are distributed this year, or is it pretty much what we would expect? Uh, there are some similarities to 2020, uh, at least in the first half of the season, in that a lot of the tropical waves uh, went somewhat innocuously across the Atlantic, and then things formed uh, in the Western Caribbean, West Atlantic, or Gulf of Mexico. And as we've gotten into September, you've had more uh, storms forming a little more quickly out in the main development region of the Atlantic, but they still haven't ramped up as quickly out in the main development region as we have seen in past years. So there still seems to be something going on that is making the Gulf of Mexico, for example, more ripe for development and strengthening than the main development region. Yeah, that's, a great, that's a great point. And I mean, I was watching even, even with Ida, uh, which was one of the storms along with Andre, Fred, and Elsa, which all track northeast, which we'll be talking about in this podcast today. You know, you had the loop current. You, people were giving similarities to Katrina. Uh, Katrina, actually, uh, I guess in terms of the size, was very different from Ida. And then, you know, some of my own research on brown ocean effect, we had Ida kind of sitting there over the wetlands of Louisiana uh, and, and, and had to maintain some of its strength. So, yeah, really been some interesting things to watch. But, but what? I mean, what's your take on these storms? I mentioned all of these storms that, uh, like Ida and Elsa, I feel like we're talking about the Northeast more <laughs> in some of these storms, at least in recent years. Again, that could be just you know, variability in this season, but it, it really is a concern given the how populated yeah. the area is. Well, you know, if you think historically and what's happened this year, the Northeast can be affected by tropical cyclones in a variety of ways. First is the direct impacts from what used to be fast-moving 
storms and hurricanes up the East Coast. They went from the Bahamas to Long Island in a day, but now they seem to be moving a little more slowly when they move up the East Coast. And you can also have landfalls in the Gulf of Mexico or in the Southeast, and then you end up getting a rain disaster in the Mid-Atlantic or the Northeast. Uh, Camille did that. Agnes did that. You, know, you can have Gulf hurricanes that end up being a really deadly event, especially in terms of water for the Mid-Atlantic or the Northeast. So um, I think historically we've talked about the Northeast a lot. It's just now I think the water impacts are of even greater concern because of sea level rise contributing to higher storm surge, higher rain rates. And, and we'll, we'll get to that in the Northeast. But, you know, Ida in the Northeast was a rainfall-induced flooding disaster, not because it was a slow mover, but because of the incredible rain rates and its interaction with a frontal system. So, uh, so many things can come together to cause water problems in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast, no matter where the tropical system initially made landfall. We're talking with Dr. Rick Nab, a hurricane expert, um, weather specialist, senior. He's got all kinds of titles. Let me just go and give you some of his credentials. I didn't even really give them at the beginning of the podcast because he's such a friend of the podcast and you know him by now. But let's let's give him his due. Um, uh, National Hurricane Center from August 2001 to 2010, where he served as a science operations officer and senior hurricane specialist. Uh, then he went to the National Weather Service in Honolulu for uh, stint from 2008 to 2010, where he was the director of operations at NWS Honolulu and a deputy director for the Central Pacific Hurricane Center. Uh, came to the Weather Channel in 2010 uh, as the tropical program manager and then on to the Hurricane Center uh, from 2012 to 2017 as the director of the National Hurricane Center uh, and back at the Weather Channel from the, uh, up till the present as a hurricane expert. Uh, Rick and I actually date back to her. We, we had some overlap at Florida State University for a while, so it's always uh, good to talk to a fellow weather, Seminole uh, weather expert as well. Now I want to do a deep dive. Let's just dive into Ida and, and, I, and not necessarily wanting to start at the Northeast. I want to kind of get us there, but I want to just talk about this idea that Ida uh, to some seemingly came up quick, but meteorologists have been tracking that storm that way for at least a week. So talk about its evolution up to the point before landfall, when we went to rapid intensification. Well, it's certainly, I was among many uh, that were tracking the tropical waves coming across the Atlantic. And we saw that tropical wave coming into the Eastern Caribbean. And I distinctly remember uh, being on the Weather Channel when we were saying we were about four days away from impacts from what was not yet a tropical depression and starting to kind of raise the alarm, but there was not a track and intensity forecast, a cone from the hurricane center yet. And you know, I think historically we've had a challenge getting the public's attention and even getting emergency managers attention when it's not yet a depression or a storm. And, uh, we knew that we had the possibility of something ramping up quickly as it heads to the Northwest Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and, you know, Ida is not the first system to go from tropical storm to landfalling major hurricane uh, in, you know, essentially from the Northwest Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. Many past systems have done that. And we've always known that those situations are going to cause among the greatest challenges for emergency management timelines and getting the public to safety. But I still think that there was time to get people out 
of the storm surge watch and warning areas, because we're not talking about evacuating the city of New Orleans, which was protected by that risk reduction system post-Katrina. That area was not put under a storm surge watch and warning, did not, for the most part, need to be evacuated. It's outside of the city of New Orleans that more than two days ahead of time, a storm surge watch and a hurricane watch went up. And at that initial forecast, when it was tropical depression number nine, on Thursday, the Hurricane Center was already on the first advisory for a tropical depression forecasting a top-end Cat 2 to strike the northern Gulf Coast. And we have for decades taught everyone, you got to plan for at least a category stronger. So we should have already been planning for high-end Cat 3 yeah. <laughs> when the first advisory was issued and uh, when the Hurricane Watch was issued. That's when it was up at top end cat two. And that's two and a half days in advance. So there was time to get people out of those storm surge prone areas outside of the city. I, I really appreciate that insight that you gave that many people may not do, know. But since you ha have been a director of the National Hurricane Center, I think that's a don't miss something that Rick said there. He said that they've actually sort of really preached this idea of planning for something, a category beyond what the sort of Hurricane Center saying at that moment. Because, I, you know, I've kind of had some back and forth with some people. Well, you guys are only forecasting a cat, too. Only a cat, too. But, oh, you know, yeah. this. Yeah, I, I hate those onlys, by the way, uh, given the fact that we have seen devastation from yeah. only tropical storms but so therein yeah so therein is i think big time uh communication challenge lesson learned from uh, ida number one and that is that i think we need to do something different when the forecast intensity is near or at major hurricane strength and i have i have now come to the conclusion that it's time for something like a major hurricane watch. If you have a hurricane watch and the intensity forecast is top end cat two, which it was when the hurricane watch went up on that Thursday, I think that should be called a major hurricane watch so that you can get people off of this focusing on the forecast being cat two. And if you look at the Twitter feeds from uh, a lot of folks in Louisiana, they were focused on cat two. And if, and if rapid intensification is as big of a problem as we know it to be, and we all know that when the forecast was for high-end Cat 2 and there was a possibility of it getting stronger and that even more rapid intensification could occur, let's use a new tool in the box and I think major hurricane watch at that point. And then major hurricane warning the next day when the hurricane warning went up and they were forecasting major hurricane would have gotten people thinking about the extensive damage and power outages that come with a major hurricane and gotten them maybe moving and taking action a little sooner. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And OMG, 
I love what Dr. Rick Knapp just said. I thought I thought that was really some breaking news, actually, uh, in terms of his proposal. Because Rick, right after Ida, I wrote a piece in Forbes saying we need some new playbooks, and that was really directed more at the emergency management community because I was making the point that you know I heard the mayor and others say, well, you know, we need a certain amount of time for evacuation for contraflow on the interstates and so forth. And I argued, I was like, okay, I get, I get that. But that playbook is based on sort of a generation of storms of the past, uh, rapid intensification, which I'm going to ask you in a moment to just define for our listeners. Uh, you and I know what it is. I mean, we're, we're increasingly seeing, or I don't, I don't want to use increasingly, but we're seeing rapid intensification where we're seeing people are going to bed to cat two storms, waking up to cat four storms. So define, um, rapid intensification for our listeners and then talk about yeah, I mean, this new playbook because you just offered a new playbook in the weather tool, tool, uh, toolbox, not just the emergency management side. Yeah. Now, now rapid intensification has often had uh, both specific and general definitions. You know, for a while we did this 30 knots or 35 miles an hour in 24 hours as a, as a, uh, a threshold for rapid intensification of a tropical cyclone. So that that's, that's, basically what we're talking about. And then usually that that's going to take you up a couple categories or more in 24 hours. Um, and when you think of Ida, you can also think of it as something that goes from a tropical storm to a major hurricane in, in three days or less, which Ida and a lot of other past storms have done. Um, and that closes the timelines, you know, because so many other things are predicated on the intensity forecast along with the track of course because the stronger hurricane is the uh, everything else created equal the worse the storm surge is going to be and the worse the overall impacts are going to be so it poses a lot of big big problems but the storm surge watch and warning from the hurricane center accounts for the possibility of something being stronger than the exact forecast so when you think about when the Hurricane watch and the storm surge watch went up two and a half days in advance with an intensity forecast of top end cat two. That storm surge watch and the hurricane center's storm surge forecast numbers were accounting for the possibility that it gets to cat three or stronger. Also accounting for the possibility that it's larger or that it's slower moving or that it's weaker, all those possibilities. So when you see storm surge watch, two and a half days in advance for a place like Grand Isle, for a place like Laplace on Lake Pontchartrain, it means business. It means that there is the possibility of life-threatening saltwater flooding, and you need to be following instructions from your local officials. But unfortunately, the Ida scenario and rapid intensification scenarios in general into fairly highly populated areas Ida showed us once again how the storm surge watch and warning are not the entire solution to saving lives from storm surge. We have to really start tackling the issue of evacuation compliance and getting people out who can't get themselves out. And for and emergency managers working on timelines that can account for the possibility that something gets stronger. And you know, there, whether it's because people chose not to leave or they couldn't leave. There were a lot of people that were in that storm surge watch and were and were at home in that storm surge watch and then that storm surge warning way too long. We had an opportunity to get those people out. And uh, you know, I I think Marshall that you know, if you th think of all the resources that were brought to bear after Ida, 
the cavalry comes in to restore the power and to set up tents and to set up stations to get supplies to people. I think that level of resource dedication before the storm yes. would be the way to change things in the future. You know, I, where are the evacuation buses? Right. You know, there should be a line of evacuation buses in these communities to help people get out because there are so many impediments to evacuation, whether it's cost or lack of transportation or whatever it might be. And if we were to bring that level of resource to folks, it might increase evacuation compliance and the ability to get people out ahead of time. I, I completely agree. Dr. Rick Nav is really dropping some important knowledge in this podcast today. And I he's spot on. I mean, we we gotta think about these things differently. I agree. I mean, I I I I've been in situations where I see these power trucks lined up in advance of the storm because they anticipate power outages. Why can't we anticipate the need to get people out, have those buses lined up? I've gone on record, frankly, as in arguing for, you know, federalized or localized uh, pots of money or grants for people who can't get out. I mean, I can afford to leave my place and go somewhere for a week in a hotel. Others can, so they don't leave. I mean, I, right. I be one of these people that just sort of pound it. Why aren't people leaving? Why aren't people leaving? And over time, I realized there's some people that just are irresponsible and don't leave, or maybe have, but there are some people that can't leave uh, for financial reasons or for medical reasons and so forth. And so I, I think, I mean, and hopefully you'll write or something. We need a new playbook for how pre-response, because something I learned while pledging my fraternity, Alpha Phi Alpha at Florida State, Rick, is prior planning prevents poor performance. That's right. And also another argument in favor of doing something like major hurricane watch and major hurricane warning, which, you know, major hurricanes create so much more extensive and long-lasting power outages that are surprisingly dangerous and deadly power outages are. And we, again, disproportionately lost too many of our elderly friends and family members in this event, a lot of it having to do with loss of power, you know, carbon monoxide, poisoning from improper generator use, uh, you know, life-sustaining medical equipment going offline, uh, you know, lack of air conditioning and, and uh, you know, people getting overheated and so forth. So if you had a major hurricane watch and major hurricane warning, that would, I think, uh, shine a brighter light on the strong possibility that we're going to have a, an extensive, long-lasting loss of power and our vulnerable citizens, especially the elderly, especially people in nursing homes, need to be safely evacuated not for storm surge necessarily, but for power outage to go to a safe place that has backup power. And that is another way to be proactive about power outage issues, not just reactive. Yeah, and it's and especially in, in an era where we're already dealing with COVID and power issues and so forth. I mean, planning is really needed. Um, when we come back from this little short break, I want to talk about Ida's impact in the Northeast. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. And wow, I mean, I I hope you're really enjoying this conversation. I I always enjoy talking with Rick, but I I think this is a vital conversation. We're having smack dab in the middle of hurricane season because these things are going to come up again. These aren't one off. We're going to see these issues. We're going to see these things again. And so I think Dr. Nav's really talking about some things. So uh, Ida trekked into the Northeast with significant heavy rainfall. Also a couple strong tornadoes in New Jersey and parts of Pennsylvania as well. I think the death toll is last I saw was 88 people or so. So I don't, I don't, I think that's maybe uh, surprising to some people. So let's talk about communicating that part of the risk because the, the Weather Prediction Center outlooks indicated flood risk three days ahead of time and they upgrade it to our high risk of flooding the day before the event. I still think people, and I saw it, I don't think, I saw people saying we didn't really think it was going to, we didn't know we were going to have that magnitude of flooding. So What's our challenge there and what's the solution, Rick? Well, obviously that day before when the Weather Prediction Center went to that high risk, which is one of the largest, you know, geographically largest high risk areas affecting a large population that I can ever remember seeing. But I remember being on the air trying to convince people that this is not your everyday flash flood watch. And I've also become convinced that there needs to be something like major flood watch or major flash flood watch because you had that weather prediction center high risk area go up the day before and you had a flash flood watch go up the day before. Which one do you think most people, if they heard anything about it, heard? They heard flash flood watch. You know, I, I don't. I, I mean, I've, I've been doing everything I can. I know others have been too, to give those weather prediction center excessive rainfall outlooks uh, as much visibility as, as we can because those are very well done a lot of expertise and, and increasing skill put into those. And those high-risk days historically have been the deadliest and most damaging flood days when they issue those. So they mean business when they issue it, but the flood watch, the, the watch warning system doesn't follow suit. So if you, if you, it would be easy to actually implement. If you have a weather prediction center, high-risk area, you take that exact same area and you call it major flash flood watch. And... You call it something different so that people here on the radio or whatever they're hearing and all the media and all the emergency managers, everybody says, okay, this is not a regular flash flood watch. This is a major flash flood watch. Then a lot of things could be done proactively again ahead of time. You could have more reason to convince officials to close schools for that day and to let people work from home that day, keep people kids and adults off the roads proactively before it even starts raining. We've learned from the pandemic that a lot can be done work-wise and school-wise from home. Isn't it worth one day when there's a major flash flood watch to everybody stay home and let this flooding happen or not and uh, go back to school and work the following day so that we don't risk people being on the roads? That would be step number one. I think the Weather Service could do. It would be pretty easy to do. 
Yeah, and I agree with that because I think people, I mean, we do things like that for hurricanes and tornadoes. Yet, and snowstorms. And snowstorms, yet flooding is one of the most deadly weather events annually, according to National Weather Service statistics, heat and flood. So people kind of sleep on those, um, pun intended a little bit, I guess. But those are our deadliest weather events, and yet we don't have the same level of alert and and pre-planning is, is the point I really hear you say. So, I mean, I, 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 this is really interesting, again, that you're really thinking about this idea of a major flood. I mean, I, you know, I know Dr. Amanda Schroeder, one of my former PhD students, is now the hydrologist down at the National Weather Service Fort Worth office. She and her colleagues were dabbling around Rush Schumacher out at Colorado State and others with the idea of something to heighten awareness of floods, some kind of flood scale or hurricane scale, something akin to that. And, you know, I know they have some publications in the literature on that, but they haven't gotten far. But you certainly seem to sort of suggest that we need something to elevate floods because people still will drive through, you know, as, as cute as turnaround don't drown is people don't do it. Right. Some people do it. People got to get my kid at daycare. Got I'm running late. I got to get them. And so they well, still, yeah, as, as many lives as turnaround don't drown has saved, it's not this whole solution either. Yeah. And, you know, so, so a major flash flood watch ahead of time could cause some proactive you know, institutional decisions to be made to lessen the number of people on the roads. And then during the event itself, by the way, when this moisture from Ida was going through Pennsylvania and New Jersey, I can't ever remember seeing as large of an area that was getting three to five inches per hour, right? consistently moving along into populated areas. So when, I mean, when I I was on the air covering it, and, and when we saw it was happening in eastern Pennsylvania, west of Philadelphia, and then up in northern New Jersey, it became pretty clear that that level of rainfall rate and the impact on the roads and the communities was headed to the New York City area. And now we get to the next thing that I think should be considered for changing, and that is, you know, you know it wasn't all that long ago, the Weather Service, you know, because there are so many flash flood warnings, they, they split them up into, a, you know, kind of a regular flash flood warning, a considerable threat, and then the catastrophic threat to flash flood emergency. And only the last two will trigger wireless emergency alerts and all of that. So a regular flash flood warning doesn't do that anymore, which is probably a good thing because you don't want every flash flood warning triggering everybody's phone every time because they're not all created equal. But the problem in this event was that I think, in my opinion, the Weather Service waited a little too long to go to considerable threat flash flood warning when it became pretty apparent in my estimation that it was at least going to be a considerable threat, if not a catastrophic threat. And so what I would encourage Weather Service to do is to not be too conservative on going considerable threat when it's a high-end event like this. Already know it's on a high-risk day. You already seen what's happened to the roads and communities upstream. Go ahead and put considerable threat out because that will trigger the wireless emergency alerts and people will hear about it, increasing the chances that they get off the roads. So uh, yeah, that's one thing that could be done. But also, Marshall, we also saw after it had already rained, after roads were completely inundated in water, and after cars were already stalled in water, there were still people trying to drive through that water. So we, you know, the turnaround don't drown campaign can only help so many people. And for the rest of us, we need to just 
close those roads and prevent them from getting there to the extent possible. Yeah, I, I agree because the, the point I, I was trying to make, and I reflect on one of our uh, Castle Williams point that he made to me, a, a former colleague, he's like, even with those slogans, sometimes the social science, the psychology aspects, people will weigh their own individual risk in those moments and and conclude that what they need to do is more important, even though they know that slogan. So a uh, key point. Um, you know, it's interesting, you know, just, this is weather geeks, so I'll geek out from a weather perspective. Uh, I mentioned Dr. Schroeder earlier, her dissertation showed us that when we have like these top one to two percentile precipitable water values, precipitable waters, when we wring out the water vapor in a column of the air, and we, you just kind of imagine this column of how much water vapor is there uh, over us. And so, um, you know, I was talking to my class at the University of Georgia in the days in advance, we were looking at those precipitable water and like, this is going to be a disaster because those it was just so moist, as you mentioned. And so that was what, why we were getting these sort of so much rain, these heavy rainfall rates. And then you had the other dynamics, Rick, you mentioned it earlier, the sort of remnants of Ida interacting with, a, I guess, a frontal system in the area. So you had the lift, you've got the moisture and the instabilities there. Those are ingredients you need. Um, so, you know, this, you mentioned climate change. There's this suggestion that in a climate changed environment, which we're in, we're no longer talking about in a future tense. Uh, we're going to see these sort of intense rainfall rates, the clausius clapeyron relationship and so forth. I didn't like to sort of say this was a causation event to climate change, but this is certainly consistent with the world of climate change. Would you, would you agree with that? I, I would say that the, the warming world climate change made this rainfall and flood event even worse than it would have already been. Uh, you would have had high rain rates, but now they're made even higher. Mm -hmm. And that is another thing that, uh, you know, just the eyeball test over the last several years tells you that it's becoming more and more common to see three, four, five inch per hour rain rates. And that is preferentially, the data show, happening in the northeastern quarter of the country. That's where rain rates and rain amounts are increasing percentage-wise over the past the most. And that's where we have such a huge population where there's so much pavement and uh, you know, fewer trees than there used to be to help absorb that water. And uh, I think it's clear, even to the folks in the state of New York, in the in New York City, in the populated areas that were affected by the rain and floods of Ida, that their infrastructure can't handle that kind of rain event and that, that it needs to be enhanced. So I, I know there's already plenty of discussion about how to make the infrastructure of our big cities better able to handle flooding. A city like Houston has the same sort of issues. You, know, you, you can only handle so much water and then, then the roads are a life-threatening situation pretty quickly. Yeah, because and as, as the colleagues have told me in the sort of hydrology and civil engineering world, uh, in these cities, these stormwater uh, management systems were designed for last on top of the fact the impervious services, the pavement, the parking lots, and so forth, you're not getting the soaking into the soils. They run that water's mm -hmm. running quickly into the lakes and streams, and they fill up, and you get flooding. It's so it, floods are really challenging because we've got these sort yeah. of yeah, meteorological climate aspects, but then sort of these other anthropogenic effects. Uh, mm -hmm. And when I talk about imperviousness and, and stormwater design and so forth, so it's a big challenge. And and Ida also brought to the forefront the danger of basements when it comes to flooding, and not just in New York City where the fatalities occurred, but uh, in other portions of Pennsylvania and New Jersey where water got into people's basements. Even that heavy rainfall and flash flood event in the northern suburbs of Atlanta 
earlier in September. Some water got into some people's basements when it hadn't ever happened before. Right. And so we have to, again, in these flash flood emergency situations, be thinking of going up and, and, and staying out of the water by staying off the roads, but staying out of the water by staying out of our basements as well, because that can be a life-threatening place to be during a flood as well. Yeah, and, and Sarah Dillingham, who our outstanding producer of the Weather Geeks, shout out to Sarah. She makes the point that even after landfall, the majority of the deaths with Ida were after the storm, um, most being heat-related following extensive power outages and carbon monoxide poisoning from uh, improper generator use. And so, again, these these are sort of opportunities for messaging. I know you all on the Weather Channel sort of warn about these things. Uh, Rick, in general, we've got to sort of start drawing to a close here, but you've, you've mentioned some provocative things today, and I agree with how do we move the needle forward? I mean, I, I mean, you, you've, you've got a voice uh, on the Weather Channel and just your reputation as an outstanding tropical meteorologist. I've heard Craig Fugate, who I was on a webinar with for the National Academies last week, say we've got to start saying things like, not saying flood risk probability, we've got to start saying things like you could die if you don't get out. Craig was as direct as that. He's the former senior director under Obama. So how do we move the needle forward? Well, the National Weather Service is extremely receptive and has been for a long time to public and partner input. And they make a habit out of meeting with the public and with their partners. So there will be multitude of opportunities for all of us to talk to the Weather Service and have a dialogue about uh, what ideas we all have for moving forward. I'm going to you know, directly submit my ideas to the Hurricane Center and to the Weather Service for their consideration. There are a number of different meetings and different venues in which the Weather Service considers changes to their products and warnings. And I'm, I'm sure they will at least consider what I have to send them. And, and they would consider yeah. what you would send them. They would consider what anybody sends in. Um, that's one thing I always have loved about the Weather Service is, is the partnership that they have with so many different types of users and 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 a direct connection to the public so they're, they're going to listen yeah i agree rick thank you so much for joining us before we get out of here i got to do what we do at the end of every weather geeks podcast we like to highlight a scientist superstar a great geologist or a weather weenie at the end of every podcast this episode's geek of the week is marie roy marie is an avid weather enthusiast and has been naming clouds since she was Three years old. Wow, that's impressive. Her favorite type of weather to follow is tornadoes, and she even saw one in Western Massachusetts back in 2011. If you have someone you'd like to nominate for Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages. Dr. Rick Knapp, thank you so much for joining us again on Weather Geeks. Marshall, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and go Knowles. Yes, and really important conversation today. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and although he said go Knowles, I'm at the University of Georgia, so go Knowles, and I better speak <laughs> in there as well. And go whoever you support, and just thank you for listening to Weather Geeks. We'll see you next time. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, 
They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.